Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to um, talk about it. Today. Likewise, likewise. So I know that um, you started your career as a researcher and considering everybody has a completely different point um, of entry into product management, how did you find uh, product management as a career path and how did your career there kick off? Yeah, it is so interesting to hear all the different pathways one can take to get here. Um, but I was interested in being a researcher, uh, had really focused on that in university, and uh, my first job was in research. And then uh, I had always had this interest in technology, and it was really starting to uh, get pretty big in Salt Lake City, where I live. And uh, lots of companies were, you know, starting, there were startups, there were bigger companies, some companies moving here. So it was getting kind of exciting. And uh, I ended up taking a research job at a startup here in Salt Lake City and um, found that my research skills that I had used in political science were really applicable to what they were trying to understand about user behavior and how people were using their products. So I found that I really enjoyed being able to use those skills uh, in a completely different industry. Um, and especially found that the results and you know, the findings that you can get are so much faster. And you know, you're not having these really, really long scale uh, research projects. And you can also make changes right away in response to what you find in the research results. And that ultimately is what led me into product management, finding things that were really interesting in the research. And then there wasn't, it was a startup. So, you know, people were playing multiple roles and wearing lots of hats and there wasn't someone to then translate what, what I had found into a plan of action and what the engineers should be working on. So I kind of transitioned into okay, here's what I found. Now here's what I think we should try and change in response to what I found. And ultimately ended up doing a, a lot less research and a lot more product management and then product management full-time. And I've been in product ever since. Brilliant. Um, aware that, you know, finding first steps into the right kind of career path um, after, you know, after formally, you know, after education um, years, is, is a bit tough. What, what is, you know, what is your take if you were to kind of look back at, um, at your transition into more of a professional world? Um, how would you, what would you say, you know, would be your top advice uh, right now for someone who is selecting um, their career steps? Because aware that for everybody it's, it's very different and sometimes it's uh, especially hard to move from one, let's say, study into something, something a lot more technical. Yeah, I, I think the best advice I could give someone who's trying to figure out what's next. I, I mean, I think it's one of the hardest times in your life, figuring out how to transition from university into the professional world, especially if it's not a very clear path from university into a job. And I think I've had this question asked of me a lot uh, from, from students who are about to graduate and wondering, how do I get into product management or something adjacent? I think the best thing you can do is try it out. And uh, there won't always be an opportunity for the most perfect internship, 
but you can still try to do these things and have an form an understanding of product and how products are developed by trying it out yourself. So in some universities, there are these sandbox programs where you can get together with an engineer and a designer and try to build your own product and try to learn all of the things that are, uh, that make up building and testing and launching a product. Um, but you can try things out on your own. You can review products that already exist and try to figure out how you would make changes. I think it's just getting some hands-on experience that shows you really understand what this role is and uh, how you could add value in it and how it's interesting to you um, and use that to then talk to a potential hiring manager to show them that you really understand what this is and you've had at least some experience in doing it. Because I think the, the hardest part is trying to prove you can do a role that you've never done before. And so if you can get some even just a little bit of practice, I think it, it sets you up for more success. Brilliant. That's that's really helpful uh, advice. And also just make sure that you're, um, you're really proceeding with a path that you already know and, and like. Um, so, really? you know, moving on, you know, through all of the years um, in your career, you've you focused obviously on more for B2C products and aware that one of the larger discussions um, and large differences in product management is between B2B products and B2C products. So um, would you would you talk a little bit more about that? Because the differences lie in testing and user acquisition and you've worked on very, um, let's say, direct-to-consumer type of products um, and also ancestry uh, DNA products. So would would welcome your, uh, you sharing your approach here. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've primarily worked in uh, consumer products, so I don't, I have an understanding of uh, B2B, but I've really focused my career on consumer. And what I think is so interesting about developing products for a consumer, you know, in a direct consumer way is uh, you can learn things so fast. You don't always have to make hypothetical decisions or, you know, just try something and have a really long process to build it and then hope that a business buys it. You can get feedback from regular people that you interact with all the time and it's useful and valuable. Um, so whether it's in a proof of concept phase and trying to figure out if a consumer product could work, there are so many people around you, you can ask and test things with and get feedback from, um, to get an understanding of whether this concept is a great idea. You don't have to find that really niche person that understands how this would apply to their business and what they're trying to accomplish. You know, it's, it's really just a lot more accessible to get feedback early on. And then... As a consumer product scales, I think it continues to be really easy to get a lot of information. You can run A-B tests on changes in the product live with real people who are actually using it without you sitting there over, you know, looking over their shoulder and learn which part of an experience is better or what you should change or how a certain piece of the software is performing and get those results in a matter of a day to a week, maybe a couple of weeks if, if traffic isn't there to support it. But I almost feel that part of the problem is having, trying to figure out how to use all that data and not get overwhelmed by the fact that you could test every single color and every iteration and every version of a product. You almost have to 
decide what is worth testing and how you would use the results if you were to test something, because it could be quite overwhelming in trying to decide what path forward if you tried seven versions and they all were roughly the same, which happens a lot. I, you know, most of the time, I think when we've tested uh, different experiences in an A-B test, the results are, it was about the same. So you still have to decide how to move forward and, and use really your product instinct and uh, any feedback that you've received qualitatively to still make the decision at the end of the day. You can't use the test results to make decisions for you. And that's something that I've often seen PMs fall into is, uh, you know, trying to use either user research in a quality, qualitative sense or quantitative research and A-B testing to make decisions for them, you know, and use it as kind of a defense of why they went a certain path. But I think that ultimately you have to use those as inputs that help you, but you make the decision based on your expertise as the product manager. Um, and uh, really, I think you could, you, you probably know what to do, but using those tools can just be really helpful to kind of guide you and then ultimately help you make the decision. Understood. And um, there's also a notion of, you know, not everybody, when, you, when you're testing, right, the product and, uh, you're trying to gauge whatever the potential consumer will be interested in the, mm -hmm. in the product. How do you differentiate between the the potential users who are just saying, you know, they like that, but then they will never ever pay for that, and then <laughs> those who actually have a purchasing intent? Yes, the age old question of how do you test whether something somebody will buy something before it's available. Uh, much easier to test this if you have something live and you can just make a change and see, do they actually purchase? Uh, but we've tried a lot of different things in um, different roles over my career to try to assess this. How do you know that this is worth paying for or that you know a user really would be interested in buying it? Because nine times out of 10, if you are there in a face-to-face -face user interview and you ask them if they would buy this, they would say yes, just because they don't want to make you feel bad, you know, and they're sitting there looking at you. So uh, we've tried um, multiple different ways of getting at this information. One of them that I really like to use is uh, what's referred to as a painted door test, where you put an experience out there live in some way, where you're not sitting there next to the person in a user test asking them if they like it, but the experience doesn't have to be built yet. You're just trying to understand if they would walk through that door and give you, you know, the intent that they would complete a purchase or continue down the path. So uh, say you wanted to launch a new product type and, uh, you know, you have kind of a marketing page that would show what it looks like and some details about it and, you know, pretend like it's a real product and then say, uh, I'm interested in learning more. They can follow that CTA and you could take them a couple steps down the path, but ultimately, instead of purchasing that product, they would leave their email address to be notified when this is available or, um, you know, be willing to participate in a follow-up interview where you could ask them about it. But you're trying to see how many steps in that funnel would the customer complete to try to gauge intent. And if we weren't there and this really was available for purchase, would they buy it? Um, and you can learn a lot from just building that, which takes very little time and you can get answers really quickly. 
without having the entire experience or product live. Yeah, I know that in chatbox you're iterating really, really fast. But before we would jump into into the fast iterations with chatbox, you also had a wonderful experience with Ancestry, which is probably a complete opposite in in a way from a perspective of shipping the product. So that's you know it's it's a it's a good opportunity to probably today to discuss that and to open up the eyes on how actually long does it take to develop the product to sort of make sure it's compliant and then also bring it to the market and manage the expectations of the users based on the data that you're having. So I'd, I'd love definitely your input on that. Could you, could you elaborate a bit more? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are certain components of the ancestry experience that you can test and iterate on quickly. But in the project that I was working on, on Ancestry DNA to release a new version of your, your we called it DNA story. So, you know, the, your ethnicity estimate and the migration paths and kind of map of where you come from based on your DNA and making any changes to that um, took a lot of time and introducing a new, a brand new feature, which was with these migration paths and more recent genetic history um, took over a year of research and development and trying different things in the product. Um, that's a really long time in, in software world, especially in consumer, to get something out the door. And, you know, part of it was wanting to get the experience right and testing lots of visual differences and versions and making sure that uh, users could comprehend it and understand it and find it interesting. But a huge component of it was the other part you mentioned, which there's all this science that goes into creating a new product like this. And, um, you know, it's not just a, you run an algorithm and, and, you know, test it and that's it. Uh, it, there's some fluidity to it. And, um, you know, we would show results to customers or, or, um, people in user interviews early on, and they wouldn't feel that the results looked right. And we could kind of use that information to slightly tweak the algorithm. And, you know, it was kind of this like more artistic process than you would think for, uh, for science. You would think that it, you know, you just, you just run it and that's it. But there were things that we were able to change and tweak along the way to make it more, uh, feel more accurate to people. And, um, you know, it wouldn't just be someone off the street that we're testing this with. This would be someone with a very strong understanding of their ancestry and where they come from. And they would know if something felt slightly off. And a lot of those changes uh, involved changing the reference panels that we were using, realizing that perhaps people were falling more into this particular ethnicity region because we had more samples from that region. And we need to go and add more samples from other regions so that they're showing up the same and we're not pulling people into, you know, too far into the wrong regions. Um, and that took a lot of time. It, you know, we needed to find more samples and, and then try the algorithm again and try the results again. And there was just so much back and forth in a really collaborative way with the science team and helping to research this and, and develop a, an algorithm that we felt super confident in. And, you know, meanwhile, that, that's all happening. And we're trying to test different, uh, you know, visual ways of show, showing this information and explaining it. And it can be quite complicated, some of it. And you're trying to make this consumer product where 
no one will be sitting there next to them explaining what this means and explaining the intricacies of genetic science. You know, it's it's just a person who bought a DNA test and wants to see the results. And so you need to make it very clear the first time they see it, what this all means and how it's interesting to them. And uh, another part that was really interesting actually was that uh, we learned in some of those early interviews that people didn't think their results could ever change. And so introducing one, this new feature with more recent genetic history, and then also updating the ethnicity results was not a concept that any of our customers had. They didn't expect that results would ever change because in their minds, their DNA doesn't change. So how could the results that you're showing me ever change? And that was actually one of the most difficult parts with updating the ethnicity results was trying to help users understand why the results might change. And it turned out to be one of the simplest things we did that actually helped people understand this. And it was just a random idea I had where I thought, what if every time they came in to see their results, there was a loader? And we don't even really check anything, but we just introduced this loader that says, checking for your most updated ethnicity results. And even if there were no updated results, would that help people understand that their results could change and that there might be something different if they were to check back again? And uh, we ran this super simple thing. I think it took like two days to build this and implement it and then surveyed people who had seen it and people who hadn't seen it on whether they expected their results might ever change. And it was just overwhelming. The results of people who saw this spinner realized, oh, my results could change. And there, you know, we had developed a couple screens explaining why it's not that your DNA changes, it's that our um, reference panels change. And as we get more samples that are more representative of world populations, we can get even more detailed and show you even more clearly where you come from based on your DNA. And um, it was pretty remarkable that such a simple change like that could fundamentally change customer expectation of what this product would deliver to them. And ultimately that was what allowed us to release the change and know that we could continue to release changes as things got better and better and not worry that uh, customers would lose trust in us that their results continue to change over time. Interesting. Not a lot of products are obviously having that type of um, very sensitive, very personal data. And I could imagine that the the users um, having done the DNA test myself, um, though <laughs> I can imagine that other users are um, a little bit touchy around the results, right? And um, who they are and, you know, their family history um, and everything that is paired together with that because it's it's a part of them, right? So um, I can imagine that was a, a very, um, almost one of a time, one, um, you know, one in a time opportunity to to go through that um, experience in in that setting. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely was, and I think again this mix of of trying to use qualitative feedback mm -hmm. as well as testing to understand how products can influence people and how they can respond to them was really critical here. I mean, we uh, we tried showing people their results in these in-home interviews. We went all over the country. We even went to the UK actually and showed people their updated results there. But sitting in a room with them and showing them their updated 
um, and different results. There were times when people would cry, when people were either really upset or happy that there was finally something there that they felt was there all along. It was just for a lot of people, a pretty emotional experience. And I didn't anticipate that going into it. Um, but it's one of those things that you really need to be sitting there to feel that this is important to people and it matters to people. And for that reason, you have to care a lot to get it right and to make sure that you're not, you know, just treating something like this with not enough care and then potentially really damaging the experience that someone could have with it. Absolutely. And now with, with um, chat books, you have a completely different scenario. You're uh, iterating super quickly. Um, you're, you know, you're now starting to reach the larger scale. Um, how do you see the differences between, you know, going from ancestry into chat books? What are the kind of the approaches that you've modified for the team? Um, and what are the, the kind of a core significant things that you're doing with the team at the moment? Yeah. I mean, with chat books, uh, there, there wasn't a single project I can think of that was nearly that long in terms of the research and the development involved in it. Um, you know, there are certain features that can be complicated and take lots of different versions and iterations, but nothing on that scale. And I think what is, what is really cool about, um, you know, having those two experiences is that at Chatbooks, you could come up with an idea and, you know, work with your product team and develop it and have it out within a week and already start getting results on a new experience. Um, it was ju it's just so quick to try new things and it's, you know, it's not life or death. It's not this super emotional thing. So there are a lot of things that you can just try quickly, see if it works and if it doesn't move on to something else. And, um, that really rapid product iteration is a great way to get to a much better experience very quickly. Um, but even so, I've found that as a product continues to scale and as more and more users are on it, and as they're you know paying more for different products, you start to lose that ability to change things too much. So um, you have to rely a lot more on, on feature flags and trying it with really small portions of the audience rather than changing things for everyone. Um, because again, just as you scale, you've got a lot more customers who are using things in a certain way. And one small change could have an enormous impact on, you know, your revenue for the day, or, um, you know, you make a change that causes the app to crash and like, that's huge. That's not just a few customers that are coming through and not able to check out like that. It can have massive repercussions. And so I think it's natural for any product as it scales to have to get more and more and more careful about the changes that you're making and um, find new ways to be able to test and try those things and it still iterate on your product without potentially breaking something that's working really well or, you know, having pretty massive implications to the business. And I know that one of the dangers is is obviously getting a little bit too close to your user. So you almost take their space, their place and in decision making. So what is your and perhaps, you know, in B2C products, that's a little bit more prominent because um, we will typically feel for the user in any case. So 
what is your take on how to prevent yourself from jumping in and making the decisions for the user when actually you need to use data and you know um the 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 uh the data from the interviews as well as the quantitative data that you've collected for that decision-making process. Yeah, you totally nailed it. I think with a consumer product, especially one that you do use or could see yourself using, it's a really easy trap to fall into think, well, I would use it this way, or I would want this product. Therefore, everyone must want this product or everyone would use it this way. Uh, it There's no way that you can ever as a product professional working on a product, be in the mindset of the user because you work on the product. You're too close to it. You you know what it can do. You, it, there's just no way that you can um, really understand what a person who's never seen this before, how they would respond to it and what they would do. So it's really important to remember you're not the user. Even if you could fit all of the demographic characteristics and seem like a person who would be great for using this product, you have to remember that you just can't rely on your own opinion for a representative population of people and their, their behavior. So that's the first thing. I think the second is I feel that it's really important to fall in love with a problem that you're solving and trying to solve that well, rather than a solution you've already come up with. I think there's a, another trap, which is you think, oh, I've just come up with this most brilliant idea. This is going to solve everything. And you try to figure out how to make that solution that you've already fallen in love with and decided is the right solution, make it fit in any situation, you know, and go back and find the data to help prove that that solution is right. And, you know, it kind of, you kind of end up doing the process backwards from my perspective, if you decide on a solution first. Whereas if you're really focused on, you know, this is the problem that we're trying to solve for, or this is, you know, the part of the experience we're trying to improve to get to X outcome, you can be a lot more open-minded that there might be lots of different ways to get there. And it's really your goal as the product professional to try those and get to the best or closest to the best solution. And, um, you know, again, that's a combination of using the feedback that you've heard and, and testing things out but um, but not deciding too early that you already know what the solution is. And then I think also another, um, another pitfall that people can fall into is doing the interviews with the customers uh, yourself. I have done both in my career. I have personally done user interviews and, and gathered feedback and um, have also worked with researchers who um, have done the research and just observed or watched the recording afterward. And I so firmly believe that you cannot be the one doing the research yourself as the PM or the UX designer, because there are small things you will do to lead a user a certain direction without even realizing that you're doing it. You know, you're kind of leading the witness as someone who has a pretty big stake in what the result ends up being, whereas a researcher doesn't. It doesn't really matter to them what the user says or which solution they like better or how much they hate a product. Their feelings aren't hurt because they didn't create it. They're just a researcher. And so they really can go into something unbiased and then share those results and share all of them rather than, you know, I've seen P 
PMs or even developers in, sit in on one user interview and then think that that's representative of everyone, whereas a researcher would know that was just one in 10. And overall, across the 10, here's what we found, you know, and they can really step back from that and provide useful insights. Yeah, this this kind of separation of responsibilities is definitely the core um, the the core action to remove the bias. Because um, even if you know, even in engineering, you would have QAs separate to the developers. Sometimes, you know, especially in a, uh, smaller teams, you share that responsibility, which is a bit like marking your own homework. Um, of <laughs> course. A plus, so it's, it's a little bit, um, you know, removing that bias and separating yourself um, takes time and takes also the team and different responsibilities being subdivided to every everybody within the team. So, yeah, totally agree. Yeah, I know a developer queuing their own experience, they always find their manage to find their way through it because they know where the holes are and they know where the bugs are and they can they can always get through it, so they don't find the bugs. Ask question differently. <laughs> cool. Um, well, I know that you know in in when you join Chatbox, that also you know, the COVID started right, so COVID hit through this year, which <laughs> meant that um, you've you've been creating the remote teams. And as we move to more from remote first kind of environments um, across the globe, I wonder what is your take on you know remote working, best tips and tricks for maintaining culture for being productive and, and really getting the the top results from your work in the remote first environment. Yeah, I mean, at Chopbooks, I think like many product organizations, most everyone, uh, we were forced to adopt a remote first um, work culture in uh, March of 2020. And we had never done it before. We had always been full-time. I had always worked full-time in office throughout my career. And so it was an experiment that we didn't intend to embark on, but uh, we had to figure it out. And I think, you know, everyone found themselves in that same boat. Um, I was really surprised to find that I felt in many ways that the product teams were a lot more productive when they were working remotely. And um, there were certain components of it that made it so that you could actually get things done faster and arrive at a better result. Uh, for example, brainstorms. I thought brainstorms have to be done in person. You need to be there with a whiteboard and like feel the energy of the room. And that's how you create great ideas and like have these sparks of inspiration is like in-person brainstorming. Uh, and then we did some remotely and I realized that one of the components of um, being in an office with people is that it's so much more likely to engage in groupthink for people to have just been talking in a room before the meeting even starts or sitting at their desks and talking and already have arrived at what they think the best option is and then take that into the brainstorm and then everyone arrives at that same thing. Um, and when everyone's remote, you don't have them sitting at their desks talking about anything beforehand or walking out of the meeting and arriving at the same conclusion. Instead, everyone came with their own ideas that were really uniquely their own and then shared them with everyone. And I realized that we had so many more ideas that were percolating that we may never have heard of if people were always working in an office together and kind of always talking and sharing those things. So I felt like brainstorms were 
a huge improvement in the remote first world. And, um, you know, there are, there are certain components of working remotely that make it really hard to feel like you're part of a team and that you're part of this, um, this culture or this, you know, like, you know, your coworkers and stuff, you can feel a little bit isolated, I think. And that, uh, was the most difficult part to overcome is figuring out how do we replace the camaraderie that you feel working in an office environment with people who are just sitting at home in their kitchen or their office or, or whatever, maybe never speaking to a person, you know, in real life during the whole day. And, uh, I think that there, um, the, the biggest thing I learned is that it takes a lot of effort. You can't just, you know, expect that you can replace everything about working in an office uh, remotely without trying really, really hard to do so. Maybe bring a couple of examples of, you know, how, what you found successful, you know, in, in small um, tactics um, that you've implemented that help the team really feel the camaraderie that, um, used to be present in the office environment and is no longer present in the remote environment. Um, yeah. So I think one of the, the best ways to promote camaraderie on a meeting is try to get everyone talking. Mm. The worst way to have a meeting is one person speaking and everyone on mute. It mm. feels like you're speaking into the void if you're the one speaking and it's not very engaging if you're one of the participants sitting on mute. So I really liked to have no mute meetings or mm. meetings where we would separate people into breakout rooms to mm. get small groups of people discussing and talking uh, because you really have to force it to get the same level of participation that you would have if you were all just sitting there together in person. Um, so that's one way I found meetings could be better. I think uh, another thing is that it's still important to have opportunities to meet together in real life. And obviously that wasn't possible for a number of years, but once it was um, at Chatbooks, we really adopted this idea that at least a few times of year, we needed to fly everyone out and get them together with their team so that they could have lunch together and do activities together and work together in the office and feel like they knew people and had a connection to them. And that would carry over for the next few months until we got together again. But I think that there really is no replacing the camaraderie that you can feel when you're there in person with someone and, you know, able to go out to dinner or have drinks or grab coffee. Like that's, it's not totally replaceable, but it doesn't have to be the norm and it doesn't have to happen all the time for it to really uh, still bring people together and kind of create that magic team environment. So I think investing in just trying to get people together as often as you can or can afford, you know, but even once a year can probably go a long way to make people feel like, I know these people, I'm not just talking into the void on Slack to a bunch of people I've never met, like, but I really know them. Brilliant. And perhaps a final question. <laughs> From my side, um, if you were to, you know, to go back to the start of your career, what would be the advice that you give yourself back then? I think I would tell myself never lose sight that this you're in this profession because it's fun and mm -hmm. you really love it. 
And there are days when it is hard and, you know, you feel frustrated and you can't get everyone on board with what you're trying to do or you're struggling with communication across the company and it can feel hard and defeating. But I, I would remind myself that you love this and you love what you do and it's fun and never lose sight of that and never forget to keep having fun while doing, while doing this job because that's why you're here. Thank you so much, Lauren. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on. Definitely looking forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much, Alex.